So this is today. Today is yesterday and tomorrow is also today. You traveled through time to the present. Yes. Yeah, I don't think you get how time travel works. It's like we're stuck. You know, like a, like a needle on a scratch record. I wake up every day right here, right in Punxsutawney, and it's always February 2nd. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. It's a thing where the same day keeps happening. Time. in a damn time loop or something well it's groundhog day again and that must mean that i'm professor robert eg black and i'm here with of all people danny rubin the original author of groundhog day here to discuss groundhog day again again <laughs> i'm sure you've discussed it a lot no first well, time uh, robert first time <laughs> they always just ignore the writer right that sounds very hollywood yeah Minute one is what this episode is officially, but nothing happens in minute one. It's clouds, opening titles, and we hear the first line of dialogue, which is, somebody asked me today, Phil, if you could be anywhere in the world, where would you like to be? Which I don't know if you wrote that line, because that's not from the original. No. In fact, they, I believe, shot, uh, and you can correct me, <laughs> the the weather station, kind of the one of the last things. It was one of the last things. It yeah. was after they had already thought they'd finished the movie and decided they needed to put something up front. And I didn't even know that happened till after it happened. Huh. Although the clouds part, that was part of an interesting conversation because we were stuck between coming up with an explanation and not coming up with an explanation yeah. and yet wanting to suggest that something had happened just to focus our, our attention on something. And I had written something about uh, weird clouds across the sky. I don't know what the wording mm -hmm. was, but it was something like that. And when I saw them for the first time, I was like, yep, there's some clouds doing something weird. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember the, the BFI book about Groundhog Day. The person thought the clouds were like a little too on the nose and cheesy. And I'm like, they're fine. It's for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Less than a minute. Well, there are a lot of little cheesy moments that somehow don't true, add up true. a cheesy movie, which I'm very pleased yeah. about. Yeah. Now, to start, I guess my first question for you is, I know you talk about it in How to Write Groundhog Day, but did you miss the voiceover? Oh, no. Okay. Not at all. That was kind of the best I could do to kick it off yeah. as a way of holding the audience's hand so they don't feel that it's too weird that things have begun in the middle, which they did in, mm -hmm. yeah. in its first inception. And once Harold decided that it really needed to have a beginning, a middle, and an end in a more conventional manner, it was no longer necessary. And I certainly didn't miss it at all. I think you acknowledge in the book that structurally your screenplay wasn't very conventional at all. Yeah. Uh, Maybe not at all. Well, no, I know what you're saying. And that's that's true in in that structurally, if it is a basically a romantic comedy, you're going to start with the beginning, beginning. Here's Phil, here's Rita, here's what they're like, you know, that kind of thing. And I the first thing I thought was this is not necessary. 
<laughs> this is the part <laughs> this is the part of the movie that you're just sort of going humpty dumpty dum let's get to the good stuff and <laughs> i had so much good stuff i thought i'd love to not have to do that and i thought maybe i don't have to do that yeah. and so basically the first act in a conventional dramatic storytelling sense the way i had it was a lot of questions how come this guy wakes up and he knows what the guys are saying on the radio? Yeah. How does he know what that guy's going to step in a puddle? Why does he slug that fellow? How does he know what's going to happen? And it isn't till the end of the first act that we see, oh, he's waking up again on, on the same day. And that's what kicks off the movie. But we've already gotten to have a lot of the fun parts. Mm -hmm. And then you get into the whole second act of repetitions of showing all the perhaps unexpected things that you might not have thought of. And I thought of a lot more than were in the movie. <laughs> there were many of them. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, in my mind, I had, I had cracked the code, and been able to figure out a new way to jump into an unconventional movie. And that just did not win the day. <laughs> but a lot of stuff in the final version does come straight from your script. Like the DJs, for example, that dialogue is already there. Almost exactly some of it. I which is, don't even remember. I, I was just looking at your original again this morning. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I should have done to double search too. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have what four different versions of the script on my computer. Wow. Because uh, all three of Ramus's revisions are online. Your second draft is not anywhere online that I've found. Well, the second draft kind of sucks. <laughs> it was trying to understand what the studio wanted mm -hmm. and trying to provide what, you know, I wanted to make everybody happy and I <laughs> wanted to give them what they were asking for. And I'd met with Harold and a couple of times and gotten notes of suggestions. And so it was really me trying to be me and Harold at the same time. And it came out kind of, uh, <laughs> there, there were some regrettable choices in there that I thought were useful stepping stones, but it wasn't what I was going for. And it wasn't what the studio was going for. So nobody took that draft particularly seriously. <laughs> so you wrote the first draft in 91. Right. Um, actually, probably it was before that. I probably wrote it in 89 or 90. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think I remember I figured out once it was 90 from how you described it. But I liked that little thing for me is the day you talk about looking at the calendar and deciding on which holiday was January 29th, which is my birthday. Uh, happy birthday. Now, see if I'd known that, maybe it would have been an entirely different movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I figured that out on the same day that I realized that Andy McDowell's real name is Rosalie, which is my mom's name. It's getting too weird. It's like the movie was for me. <laughs> and I was there in the middle of a there year. There are an awful lot it. of people who feel that way. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is one of the interesting things about it. People are reading things into it. It's like, oh, my God, he wrote it for me. Mm -hmm. And I did, whoever you are. Yeah, it's, it's a Jewish film. It's a Christian film. It's a, <laughs> whatever you are, it fits. The idea wasn't about Phil Connors, a weatherman going through Groundhog Day. The idea that got me all excited was a person reliving the same day over and over again. And I had all these ideas of what that would mean, but I knew if I was going to write it, actually put it down on paper, I had to be specific. Who is that guy? Mm -hmm. Where is he? What day is it? What season is it? Where are we? Yeah. There were so many questions. And I did tick through a lot of the possible obvious choices. Is it a Christmas movie? <laughs> you there know. are a lot of time loop Christmas movies. <laughs> well, now, is it his uh, anniversary? Is it the anniversary mm -hmm. of something important that happened to him? New Year's, 
I was always intrigued by leap year since I was a kid. Just mm, the idea that nice. there's a day that you could be born that might not come up for another four years. <laughs> that, that bent my mind in a probably a useful way. But what I did was said, okay, well, let's just be methodical about it. Opened the calendar. And the first holiday was two days later, three days later, Groundhog Day. And I just went, perfect. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, everything about it made sense. And I kept testing it, saying, does it still make sense? And yeah, it still makes sense. And the things that made it made sense, first of all, is because I was doing industrial writing at the time and had done a convention for Bell of Pennsylvania, Ma Bell, yeah. you know, telephone company. And they, you know, we'd go in, I was part of a comedy troupe, and we would ask them questions. Uh, all the vice presidents gathered around a room, very excited to be talking to these comedy show busy people. And we would say, tell us some things that your members would know about that everybody has in common. And we'd learn about the culture of the company and be able to make jokes about specific people. But somebody at the time had told us about Punxsutawney and the Groundhog Festival. And like many people, I was vaguely aware that there was such a thing called Groundhog Day that nobody took seriously. Yeah. And I didn't know where it took place or if there was a real thing. But after that conference, I did know there was a place called Punxsutawney. It was a small town in Pennsylvania, and they did this Groundhog Festival. And I kind of half remembered that and decided I should double check that that really is true. Research in those days meant going to a library and uh, looking up a phone number to the, what was it, the Chamber of Commerce. Chamber of Commerce. And yeah. I called them and they answered. It was February 2nd, the day I got around to it. And they answered the phone, happy Groundhog Day. <laughs> and I basically, bing, figured it out. Nice. I knew that I wanted the main character to be going to a place where they were not comfortable. I didn't want him to just sort of be in his own neighborhood with his own people. I felt like he should be somewhere new and different and unfamiliar. And it'd be more interesting if it was a place that you could get bored with in five seconds and <laughs> make him sort of superior to the place and then keep him stuck there. Because I knew if he were living in New York City and you were stuck in New York, oh my, <laughs> how many million people are living that life quite happily? Yeah. So that's how that came about, Groundhog Day as the holiday. And it all worked out with the, the hokiness of the ceremony and for him to feel superior to that, that he was better than all these people and to take his journey from there. Yeah, and eventually kind of accept it as something worth celebrating by the end of the film. Groundhog Day, I mean. Which it is for the people who celebrate yeah. it every year. They know it's goofy. They, it's not like they're a bunch of yokels who take it all seriously. Like in many small towns across the country, they're just... <laughs> organically arrive some kind of silly ceremony that they do for some reason for the spirit of the town yeah. and they know it's silly <laughs> they they they've drunk the groundhog juice or whatever they call it <laughs> <laughs> and he's a weatherman whose job is to predict the future and now he for at least a little while can't which is it, it nice those kinds of things bonus. just sort of smell ripe mm -hmm. even if i didn't know where they were going to lead exactly it just seemed like a good idea to pursue that sort of thing yeah and you say in the book you thought of it as being related to siddhartha where it's the young man's journey into like enlightenment sort of not even to enlightenment in my memory of the book it was just a young man's journey through life. Yeah. And that to me was what the movie was. It wasn't a, a broad comedy about somebody in a goofy situation. 
it was a way by having a repeating day of having actually an eternal life, yeah. uh, a very, very, very long life, not eternal because I knew he had to get out of it. I assumed he had to get out of it and I went into it thinking he had to get out of it. But because I did not create an arbitrary plot reason for him to get out of it, like, you know, a, a science fiction, yeah, yeah. fix the time machine or something, then it didn't become a plotty movie where the plot was all about him trying to get out. For me, it was always an existential movie where he had to accept that he couldn't get out. And then here I am stuck with this repeating day. Well, what do you do? What is what is life for? What do you do when you get up in the morning? Why would you do this instead of that? And so it all becomes about his own personal growth. So you already mentioned working with Ramus that it became a romantic comedy. At what point, like, was that okay with you? I mean, the love story is, is good, but it was already there was a love story in it. It was always about Phil in my mind, and I didn't spend that much time thinking about Rita and where she came from and what she needed. I just gave her a personality and a little bit of life ambition, but not too much. I made her sort of a, a balanced, good, nice person, not somebody yeah. full of angst and needing of movement. <laughs> and she was also, quite frankly, the person who was the signal to us that Phil had changed. Somehow she was involved in that. But I wasn't, she wasn't really um, a, a full player in, in my original drama. It was just about right. Phil. And I think in trying to make it a Harold Ramis movie, a kind of movie that he understood and felt comfortable with, I think he started making it more of a, without giving up the things that, that were so original to it, he, I think he felt it needed a stronger structure that the studio understood and that, frankly, he felt comfortable with. And that leaned into the romantic comedy aspect of it. Which made a good use of another character you had, uh, Tess, combining her with Rita actually changed. Boy, uh, using the name Tess is like, wow, whoosh, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's the one he fakes the drink, like knowing the favorite drink. And right. With. Well, that's that was sort of part of Harold's experience talking to the young writer. I had several good scenes, but actually the very first thing that I thought of when I was thinking, oh, this repetition thing could be really fun and original was that scene of picking up a woman at a bar and using things that he learned about her to get her to sleep with him. And I gave that to just an incidental character. And one of the things Harold said was, that's a great scene. You got to give it to the main characters. Yeah. And uh, Rita wasn't really a main character. She was just another character who became important toward the end. But that was sort of me writing and halfway through going, oh, how's he going to get out of this? Uh, uh, <laughs> and starting to pay more attention to the relationship with Rita. So yes, the, the giving your best characters your best lines seems like a good way to consolidate yes. the movie in a way that we understand it better. Definitely. Next question on my list is one I actually don't want to ask, but I have to, because people always talk about how long Phil's in the loop. I usually refuse that question because <laughs> I think it doesn't matter. Well, that's my answer too. I, I think of Death, the High Cost of Living, if you know what that is. It's a comic book by Neil Gaiman. He wrote Sandman. I know who he is. <laughs> But um, in Death, the High Cost of Living, Death tells someone that just died, you got what everyone gets. You get a lifetime. It's like, it doesn't matter how long you have, as long as you know that it begins with something and ends with your death. And like, you, you, it's what you do in the middle that matters. 
It also mattered that it was long. Yeah. It, if it took place in two weeks, as the studio had suggested, it helpfully, that's a, that's a, a sitcom. That's 22 and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. That's every problem is solved by the end of that and we move on. And that's sort of a child's view. And I thought one of the things that was interesting about the original notion was that it would have to take, you know, it was, it was a question to myself. If a person could live longer than one life and they were one of these kind of arrested development type adults is one lifetime enough is the problem that they will never change or is the problem that maybe they just haven't lived long enough Mm -hmm. to have experienced enough to have changed. So that was an experiment. That's how I phrased it in my own mind. And that's how I built the story. So whether it was one lifetime two, 12, a hundred did not matter to me. It just needed to feel long. It should be able to be justified as potentially having been longer than one lifetime. Harold didn't necessarily agree with that either. He sort of settled on, in his mind, something like 20 years. And that was just something that felt comfortable to him. And both of us felt very elated with the idea that it was 10,000 somethings, (laughs) 10,000 days, years, months, weeks. As long as it was that, then you had the, the Buddhist implications and resonance. And we both flattered ourselves with thinking that that, that would be a nice thing. <laughs> On a practical level, the 10,000 years, like the really long estimates bug me because I feel like Phil would be in a bad place when he gets out of that loop because he wouldn't know how to live anymore. I agree with you. And that's one of the reasons I don't really think that the movement toward enlightenment is necessarily accurate. Mm. The way the movie came out, it leaves you with the feeling of Phil having satisfied what a, a human being needs to learn in this life. And so it winds up being interpreted that way. And if you're from a philosophical or religious tradition that has everything ending in enlightenment, then that's very satisfying. So it works. But in my honest opinion, there is a point beyond the final day that Phil experiences in the movie and another 20 years after that, where he would once again go through a different phase in his life where, okay, being selfless and solving other people's problems is very good, but now I'm bored with that. (laughs) Now what do I do? Well, yeah, you can get bored with anything if you do it long enough. It's a never-ending kind of thing, but that's not very satisfying for a movie, certainly not for an entertainment movie. More recently, and I will talk about this through the show occasionally as well, you worked with Tim Minchin on the musical version. Oh, Tim was so lucky to get to work with me on that. <laughs> Great phrasing. I'm sorry, that was sarcasm. Yes, of course, <laughs> I'm lucky to work with Tim Minchin. That was one of the most satisfying relationships of my life. Sorry, Louise. but <laughs> <laughs> You said one of. <laughs> Yes. Well, Tim is, of course, he's, if anyone knows his stuff, he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. He's thoughtful. He's clever. He's quick. His music is brilliant. He's a brilliant musician and he's a brilliant entertainer. He knows how to put all those things together in a way that is satisfying without being cloying or <laughs> overly uh, sentimental. Yeah. And I feel like I'm I'm describing myself except without the same levels of brilliance. I'm, <laughs> I'm like an okay musician and an okay wordsmith and I'm kind of clever and I am well-meaning. <laughs> We're both nice people. 
And I was very happy to find that his rock star qualities have not gone to his head. He knocks himself back all the time (laughs) and is just genuinely a a good person. So just spending two minutes with him, I knew this was somebody I wanted to work with. It just was obvious it was going to work out. And uh, and it did. Yeah. And unfortunately, I never got to see it because it never came to L.A. and then it just kind of went away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I went into it having done just enough research on musicals to know that they don't succeed, Mm. you know, one out of a huge number. If you were an investor, this is among the worst investments you could make is in a um, Broadway musical. (laughs) Just everybody knows that the people who do invest yeah, they hope they'll win, but in the end, they just want a chance to be at the table and to to be part of the fun experiment of building a Broadway show. <laughs> but the idea that they're going to make back their money, that's like, well, that, that would be bonus, but that's not why we're in it. And our show, we, we workshopped it in London yeah. and we put it up at the Old Vic for 12 weeks, sold out without doing any advertising. It was just word of mouth. Twitter came out after the first preview and that was it. We were on our way and got great reception and we were very excited and used that encouragement to move to Broadway. And the Broadway season was packed with great shows. And for a variety of reasons, we got great reviews and people came, but I think a lot of people kind of held back sort of wanting to make sure that it was okay. It's like they loved the movie so much. (laughs) It sort of felt like an exploitation. Me, I waited 20 years after the movie came out to even get involved with the musical because I wanted it to be more sophisticated. I wanted to grow a little bit, develop more opinions and do something that was the movie, but was a more profound version of the movie. It could stand on its own. And we all went for that. We went for everything that was great to go just a little deeper, to bring in little surprises for people who thought they knew the story so well. And I think we delivered. We really did. Oh yeah. But it lasted about six months, which is a great. A lot of people did see it, mm-hmm. but then that was it. And the traveling show never happened because all, right. all the theaters got cold feet when we closed on Broadway. And then we couldn't get a theater in London because theaters are all being occupied by (laughs) 20-year-long Lion Kings and now Harry Potters and um, revivals and your Hello Dollies. And it's just getting a theater is a big deal. You can't find one that's the right size and the right feel for the show that comes open and doesn't go to to the, the latest big Broadway hit. So every year that became harder. So anyway, we're just laying back like many COVID theater uh, thinkers are. Yeah. And it has been licensed and and there are a couple of productions popping up around the country, around the world, actually. And once theater comes back, I think you'll be able to see a really good professional production, if not a Broadway one. Even if it were back in Broadway, I'd have to make an effort this time. I was like, just assuming, okay, it'll travel next. I'll have a chance. And then it didn't. And I was it's like I missed the chance. Well, one of the lovely things about the show, we decided to commit to a kind of a razzle-dazzle version with five turntables sort of that turned the entire mm. stage into a clockworks that all the characters <laughs> were trapped in and the choreography matched that thought. Uh, just um, wonderful magic tricks that allowed... Yeah, that great bed. Exactly. It crawls into it. <laughs> well, it'll just allowed Phil to be killed in one second and show up waking up the next moment. Mm -hmm. It was really fun stagecraft. 
etc. But there was both a workshop that we did before any of that had been developed when we just had people interacting with each other. And then there was also our first preview where all of the turntables broke. (laughs) They decided, you know what, let's do the show anyway, sort of sitting down uh, concert style. And in the end, what we realized from those two things was it's a very lovely, our town-ish, humble production. It works on that emotional level, even without all the fun, um, expensive Broadway pieces of the puzzle. So any theater could put it on any high school, any, anybody, and it'll, it'll work. So I'm very pleased with that. When I saw the staging of some of it, they performed at the Tonys and I was like, it would be hard for like a small little theater to produce it for that. Yes. But yeah, you could change it around. It doesn't have to be complex. Absolutely. Well, we had so much fun. There was this idea of of big and small, of Phil Connors feeling bigger than the town and, you know, these kinds of up-down things. So we had a lot of miniatures and people and and the guy in a groundhog suit who was much Mm -hmm. larger than the the little TV van that they arrive in. And, (laughs) you know, it was just it was just a lot of fun surprises all the way through using that idea. Now, you only have a few um, credits on film writing just groundhog day the italian remake ikea Yuri, stork day which is actually a pretty good film yes i i did it in italian all by myself <laughs> all by yourself I, I said you know what we should do this in italy and i'm going to translate it one movie of yours i hadn't seen i think since it came out was hear no evil mm. and it's not streaming and i was i was going to watch it last night and i'm like oh i can't <laughs> <laughs> that was actually the first thing I sold. I wrote that when I was living in Chicago and trying to figure out what I was doing for a living. You know, <laughs> I, I did not think of the industrial writing as being my future. I did not think of doing the the comedy group stuff as being my future, but I didn't know what I was going to actually do. <laughs> and I was hoping for something to kind of choose me. And, you know, I was tr- always trying different things, but I decided to write a screenplay and see how that went. And I sold Hear No Evil to Hollywood. And I was like, great, fine. Finally, I know what I am. I'm a screenwriter. I'm just going to do this. <laughs> and actually moved to Los Angeles with my wife and had our baby, you know, within a couple months of that. And so I felt like I was just starting on my professional adult life at that point. And so that went through a lot of rewrites And I was trying to do something big like uh, North by Northwest, a big uh, international thriller kind of feel. And the producer who optioned it really wanted to do Wait Until Dark. And we never really saw eye to eye because in my mind, being deaf and being blind are very different and have different kinds of challenges. And those two things don't really translate. But he insisted that it should. And I wrote a few drafts and then they moved on to other writers. So in the end, it became a different movie, which was fine. It got me my career, got me into the Writers Guild, got people interested in seeing the next thing. And the next thing I wrote was Groundhog Day. And then that got set up at Columbia Pictures and Harold Directing. And I was like, great, I'm on my way. And Mm -hmm. between those two, I'd moved to LA and I was going to all the meetings all over town where people were looking at the script Groundhog Day that I had written, but nobody wanted to produce it. They just said, wow, I love Groundhog Day. 
of course we can't make it. <laughs> I didn't know why, but I was sort of go along, get along. Yeah, I don't understand Hollywood. Yeah, of yeah. course we can't make it. I never said why not. It didn't. <laughs> it, that seemed a little provocative, and I was, like I said, trying to feed my baby. And so uh, went to all these meetings and people would offer me other things. And the one that came through was SFW, which was a book adaptation at at the time working with James Foley, who was a very made director. And that also got made. Mm -hmm. And so I had those three things that kind of all came out within a year of each other. And I felt like a totally happening guy. But I also did not want to live in Los Angeles. It wasn't even with those successes or that confidence. It was really just I didn't want to live in L.A. and didn't want to raise my kids there. No knock on L.A. It's just a personality (laughs) match. And we wound up moving to Santa Fe. And for several years, I was very sought after. And Groundhog Day got made in that time and got, you know, it was a Bill Murray movie. So I must be a genius or a young genius yeah. to have written something and landed it with Bill Murray. And so people perceived me as a happening thing. And they kept hiring me to write another Groundhog Day. I just didn't know what that meant, but I thought it meant something original and different and a little offbeat, but very middle of the road in terms of entertainment. And that's not so much what they meant. They were saying, could you get Bill Murray into this movie? Or could you write a nice romantic comedy with Goldie Hawn learning love and understanding with their family when they go camping? And I, I, it's like, have you seen my movie? Have you seen my work? This is what I do, really. And it was just a, a mismatch between me and my ambitions and Hollywood and their ambitions. And there were things that almost worked out and then didn't for all those Hollywood reasons that things almost worked out. And it was fine. I got a whole career of working with interesting people and doing interesting projects that I said, you know, I don't want to do the version that we can all tick off in our heads. I want to do the something a little bit more interesting. And they say, yeah, 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 that's why we hired you. And then every note was, could you get rid of this interesting part and just get right to it? That's how I saw it anyway. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it makes sense that I haven't had a million things made. That's okay. It's sort of worked out well. I'm, I'm <laughs> have, have lived a rich and interesting life and I'm not done yet. And other things are happening and they've all been satisfying for me. So fine. Speaking of SFW though, I watched that again the past year to talk about on a different show of mine, Cock and Bull Minute. And I hadn't noticed before you put Phil and Rita in that movie. Uh, No, it was kind of funny because (laughs) while I was writing it, I was thinking, oh, you know how Alfred Hitchcock shows up in all of his movies? Maybe I'll have these character names show up in all of my movies. Never, (laughs) never having anticipated that Groundhog Day would become something that everybody knows. And then when you see Phil and Rita, you're like, what? (laughs) So it became sort of stupidly distracting. And I'm glad I'm glad I didn't get more movies because <laughs> that would have been a really bad idea. Most of life is just junk, right? It's, it's filler. And then there's these moments when all the randomness turns into something perfect. It's like life's dropping all the bullshit just for a second to show us how amazing it could be all the time if it wanted to. Hmm. I don't know. I think maybe we're supposed to become, like, better people. Though I honestly don't even know how that could be possible. Never think about it. We must miss so many of them. All those tiny perfect things are just... 
poof, gone, lost forever. But not today. That is a disturbingly inspirational idea, Mark. It's a perfect day. You couldn't plan a day like this. Well, you can. It just takes an awful lot of work. Time. last revision is what counts apparently what if we found them all all the perfect things in this one town in this one day we could collect them now one of the things i'm going to do on this show is a uh, time loop of the week where i talk about other time loop movies tv episodes stories whatever i'm curious what is your favorite that isn't groundhog day of the time loop movies yeah time loop movies stories tv episodes mm. There's a lot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I, I didn't really realize how many there were. Every now and then one will come up and my friends will write to me and say, you've been ripped off again. <laughs> there are a couple of them that didn't even seem to try very hard to not rip it off. <laughs> but of the ones that felt like they were trying to do something original with it, that is great. I love that. It, it seems I knew while I was writing it, there were many different kinds of movies I could make out of that premise and deciding on sort of a lighthearted existential comedy was because my daughter had just been born and I was feeling lighthearted and happy and positive. And I didn't want to spend months and months indulging myself in a David Lynchy, dark, repetitive world. (laughs) But favorites, I don't know. I don't know. There were some that I like more than others. When people would ask me about a sequel to Groundhog Day, what would you do? Mm. Um, I thought about it for a long time, not because I ever wanted to do a sequel. That seemed to me like it would not be a good idea. I had no interest in doing that. And that's, I jokingly told people, you know, just give it a new title and re-release the movie, which I thought actually would be a smart marketing thing for the studio to do. I don't know if they would have ever figured that out. (laughs) But what I did come up with was the idea of a couple going through the same loop. And to me, that's different. That's very different than one person going through it. It then becomes about relationships and it becomes about how different people change at different pace and react to different things, even when given the same day over and over. So the first one I saw that did that was Palm Springs. There were things that I liked more and less about that movie, but in the end, that was the thing that made me go, ah, so good for them. They got it. They figured out something that I had figured out. (laughs) Yeah. Chris McQuarrie did the one with a a war situation. And it, it, did I get that right? It it was somebody, a soldier in a battle who keeps. Do you mean Edge of Tomorrow? Yeah. Every time he gets killed, he has to go back to the beginning and do it. Yeah. They even have a Rita in that movie. Oh, do they? I didn't notice. Emily Blunt's character. That works because it's very much like a video game. Yeah. And that is something that reflected the culture. And I thought that was clever and was a new way of doing it. Since then, other people have the day repeating, but they wind up getting killed on that day. But then again, that's sort of like the reason I didn't do a time machine, because those movies become plotty. Yeah. And they're just about how do I undo that? And that doesn't mean they're bad. That's just those were, would have been reasons I wouldn't have done those movies. I like to see how people deal with the issue, but I don't know if I have a favorite. Mine is my favorite. <laughs> I should know this, but did you have anything to do with the video game, the Groundhog Day? Oh, you like know, Father, like not really. Basically, 
they called me and I happened by coincidence to be, where was I? I guess in, in San Francisco. And there, is that where it was? Now I don't even remember. <laughs> they asked me to come in and talk to their video game division about a Groundhog Day game. And I thought, oh, they want to pick my brain and blah, blah, blah. And I sat down with the person and I told them all the things that I thought it should be. And then he started pitching me something. How about like this? And I told him all the reasons that was a terrible idea. <laughs> you want to know why I didn't get more movie deals? Because it's like, I'm not after just making money. I'm after doing the project that I think will be better. And he started pitching me and I told him and I saw his, his face fall. And at some point I realized, oh my God, they're already like three quarters of the way into this. They're almost ready to release this thing. I don't know why they're even asking me what I think of it. <laughs> but the thing that it, it was actually written by the son of a friend of mine, hmm. Bruce Joel Rubin, who's also a screenwriter. And we're not related, but we do have a lot in common. His son also seems to be a, a good guy and a very well-regarded game writer. But to me, the idea of what they did with it was they did exactly what I wouldn't have done, which is do a sequel. Yeah. Here's Phil at this age and Rita at this age. What was their, it like for their kids growing up? And how do we make that into a game? And they did many clever things in it. I, I never played it. I was waiting for them to send me one. And it's like, no, no. Uh -uh. Unfortunately, it's PlayStation VR, which is basically like buying a second PlayStation. So I haven't done it. <laughs> well, they could have bought me one of those too, right? <laughs> I, I, there was no, no end of generosity that they did not show to me. And maybe it was because I, I told them how lousy their idea was. And they said, well, screw him. <laughs> But I did have a, lo a long, very long conversation with the writer and just to sort of swap ideas and in the end for me to give him my blessing because I think that's what he wanted. And, and you know, I guess some people liked it and I don't know how well it did and it's fine, you know, whatever. Yeah, I've seen positive reviews, but I don't, I haven't had a chance to even watch someone play it. So yeah, well, there's, there is obviously cleverness in it and I think it would be a fun journey, but it wasn't what I would have done. I would have hired a psychologist mm. and had everybody who was going through being the character going through this situation, sort of going through different psychological phases to get to the next level. <laughs> it might've been a big order. And uh, yeah, I understood why they made the choices that they did. I don't blame them at all. Yeah. The psychological angle would be hard to put in a video game. Yeah. But the I repetition like a, like is a, right there. I like a challenge. <laughs> yeah. I guess the final question, do you want to be negative? <laughs> I was going to ask, what maybe do you wish was in the movie that wasn't? Oh, like the church scene, for example, or something even from your original, like the. No, I had lots of good ideas and nothing. Many of them, uh, you know, they just can't all fit and everything yeah. has to, to be in its place. The movie works on so many levels and clearly in a lot of ways that I wouldn't have even anticipated. And so, yeah, you can't just sort of put something else in and say it would have been better like that. It could have <laughs> thrown the entire perfectly rotating uh, disc um, off, off into a wobble. Yeah, it ended up a very well-paced, well-structured sort of story. Definitely. By nature, I don't look back. I love some of the deleted scenes that I know they filmed, like with the old man and his poem he leaves on his body for the ambulance is a great scene. 
but I don't know if we need it at that point in the movie. Exactly. It's, it starts to be gilding the, the lily. I like, I think this is from your original when he's counting the cracks in the sidewalk and they filmed some version of that with the kids interrupting him. And I've seen a photo from it, but never the video. And I'm like, that'd be an interesting scene, but it may, we don't need it. I don't, I don't even, I, I don't even know which scenes were shot that I never saw because I never saw them. <laughs> you've done all this research. So you've seen them. It's like, wow. That, that would have been great. <laughs> yeah. There were things like when the old man died. I had seen the movie several times before I noticed that his final breath was visible. Yeah. And I thought that was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen. And I congratulated Harold. And I think he pointed out it was in this script. It was, <laughs> I actually wrote that. <laughs> it was like, oh, wow. Well, nice. Pat on my back too. It, it is a great shot. Yeah. We're coming up on the 30th anniversary of the movie? It's the 30th, this coming Groundhog Day. In a couple of years. become yeah. aware is the 30th anniversary of shooting. Of shooting it. Shooting. And then the year after. So it's, it's, it's a bigger deal in Woodstock, Illinois than in many places. <laughs> yes. They get a crowd and their celebration is celebrating the movie being there, which is great. As well they should. I think I might have to go back again. That was fun, wasn't it? Stuck. It was. I found it a little bit disconcerting when they invited me as a special honored guest, as you recall, mm -hmm. to um, actually be up there when they're talking to the groundhog and listening to it. And then they shove me in front of a microphone and say, tell him what Phil said. And I said, well, did he see his shadow? Didn't he? They say, it's up <laughs> to you. That was about as inside Phil as I ever got. <laughs> it's a great little town. Were you there when they were filming it all? A little bit. You visited Punxsutawney before when you were working on the That's right. script. We went before. And then during filming, I was there for pre-production. We They were building sets and I was still, you know, Harold and I were still trying to figure out the script. There were a lot of costume special effects type people running in and say, do we build a wig? Do we do we make him a wig? Because there was a scene where he shakes <laughs> yeah, where he his head his and then wakes up and sees that he has all his hair back and a lot of that thing and then I was there for the first week of shooting after that but my family had just moved to Santa Fe from LA they had done the move while I was at work up in you know <laughs> having the time of my life with this movie set and I was starting to feel like well okay I'm starting my career officially with this being the first movie that I've been on the set for and all that and I'm starting a family with all this where am I going to draw the line, be the kind of person I want to be? And I felt like I need to be at home now. They don't need me on the movie set. They said yeah. I could feel free to stay if I wanted, but they clearly didn't need me. Uh, Harold is a writer. Harold and Bill improvise together on yeah. the scenes a lot. And I would have just been an observer. And if you add my lack of being necessary to my guilt about the family, to the fact that it was about as cold that winter as I've ever been in my entire life. It was a bone <laughs> chilling. It was, you step outside and you just want to go somewhere else. And it was, there just didn't seem a lot of motivation to stay. And I'd had my, my shot of being with these famous people who I'd gotten to know, and I just didn't need to indulge that anymore either. So I was fine. Nice. They did it without me somehow. I was going to say final thoughts, but I don't want it to be the last thing you ever say about Groundhog Day, but final thoughts for this episode. 
No, I, I, I have no final thoughts about that. I, I hope nothing I have is a final thought, um, <laughs> although eventually something will be, won't it? Yeah. But I just always feel kindly and fondly about how it all happened and the fact that it happened and the fact that it happened to me and that people still enjoy it and are still talking about it. So thank you, Danny, for being here. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for Minutia Ex Machina, every Wednesday for more Groundhog Day, and every Thursday for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Follow the show on Twitter at Groundhog Day MXM, Instagram and Facebook at Groundhog Day Project. This has been a production of Lemmy Drop Studio. You can find more at lemmingdrops.com. Join the Facebook group, Lemming Drop Studio Tour. You can also support the show as a Patreon at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. And don't forget your booties because it's cold out there. I think I have traveled through time. What is wrong in the end which never comes? Or comes again and again, lap, lap, laughing, like waves. How, I don't know. How do you sleep at night? You've never seen Groundhog Day? Yeah, you know Groundhog Day is not a documentary. Man, are you hungry? I haven't eaten since later this afternoon.